Well, Mr. President, dear Joe, we are so pleased to welcome you in Brussels. You are back in Brussels, and America is back. We're feeling very good about it, and America is back. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you might just have heard who's been in town this week and who's back in the international fold. Yes, you just heard Joe Biden welcomed by European Council President Charles Michel for an EU-US summit on his first trip abroad as US President. That was one of four summits Biden attended in Europe over the past week. He started with the G7 in Cornwall, went on to meet NATO and EU leaders here in Brussels, and then headed off to Geneva for a powwow with Vladimir Putin. We'll sum up the sum total of the summit, somehow, from both sides of the Atlantic in just a moment. And later in this episode, you'll hear from Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, in an exclusive political interview where she focuses on gender equality and how to break the glass ceilings that stop women getting to the top in the world of finance. If you look at the, at the landscape and you look particularly at the financial sector, which is the one that I have focused on recently, in the private sector, only about 20% of board members are women and 2% of the bank's top-level appointees are women. So there is a long way to go. Just before all of that, we wanted to say happy birthday. Happy birthday! To ourselves and kind of to you too. This podcast is four years old this week. And if you're a regular listener, we hope you'll consider this a kind of extra birthday for you too. You're part of the gang. And if dear old Queen Elizabeth can have two birthdays, so can you. Are you supposed to be looking as if you're enjoying it? Yes. <laughs> Actually, we've got to the stage where we're too cool to have a big party, but we do very much appreciate you being there. Whether you're a new listener or you've been around since we launched back in 2017, thanks for being there. The greatest gift you could give us would be to tell a friend about the podcast, anyone you think might enjoy it. Obviously, this is not quite true. The best gift would be cake, but recommending us to a friend would be a close second. Now, let's get down to business with Joe Biden's European tour. And it's very fitting that on our fourth birthday, we should be joined by the original host of EU Confidential, coming to us from Washington, D.C. It's Ryan Heath. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Brussels. Hi, Europe. <laughs> uh, wow, look at that, a transatlantic uh, relationship in action. And joining us from Paris, Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. So we're here together partly to celebrate, of course, the podcast's uh, fourth birthday, the big event of uh, recent days, but uh, also to talk about some other uh, minor matters on the diplomatic stage, uh, particularly the uh, series of summits which are just coming to an end as we record with US President Joe Biden, starting off with the G7, then including NATO, and then an EU-US summit. Reem, you were at two of those summits, so why don't you start us off First of all, one of the things we talked about, obviously, was how Emmanuel Macron was going to adapt to this new reality, a very different US president. The previously, you know, Macron had enjoyed this very central role on the international stage, kind of champion of multilateralism. Now, as Joe Biden told us frequently, America is back. So how did Macron and Biden get along, bearing in mind this is also the first time they'd actually met, right? 
So I was at that first meeting at their first bilateral. Of course, at, at the top, I wasn't unfortunately allowed to stay for the real meat of the, of the action. Uh, but I was struck. Their, uh, their body language was really quite warm, very friendly. And just also looking at pictures from the entire weekend, a lot of touching, a lot of holding each other's backs, massaging each other's shoulders. It's not so much the bromance that existed, uh, with Trump, but it's, it's a warm one. It's a, you know, Biden is known to be someone who is uh, quite touchy feely and Macron is too. So I guess they, they connected on that level. But more seriously, clearly, they did find quite a few topics that they agree on. Both of them, for example, are very big on making sure that what they call the multilateral system works for the middle class, the middle class at home. Why should European and American citizens uh, support these kinds of summits and support uh, this kind of way of doing diplomacy? But... Of course, there are some very big policy differences that came to light. I was really struck by what happened on China at the NATO summit. We knew for days ahead that Macron has been saying that he doesn't think he needs to align with the American position, which is much more belligerent, much more confrontational towards China. And indeed, he repeated that Again and again, China is not part of the Atlantic geography, he said. And with a hint of irony, he would say, unless my map is off. But at the end of the day, he did do a diplomatic move, which was he signed on to the communique at NATO that had stronger language toward China. But right after at his press conference came out swinging basically telling us, well, I don't agree, but I did sign on. So maybe he didn't want to be completely against Biden in their first few summits. Right. I think that seems like that's one of the challenges for the Europeans. They want to make nice with Biden. They have lots of common ground, but they don't uh, agree on everything. Certainly some of them don't want to get kind of dragged too far into a direct confrontation between the US and China. And I think they're wary, particularly, as you said, Reem, with NATO, that NATO, if you like, gets distracted from what they and many others would see as its primary focus, particularly at a time when, when Russia is causing a lot of concern, particularly for you know Central and Eastern Europe. European countries. Ryan, watching it from the other side of the Atlantic, I mean, this was Joe Biden's debut as president, his first overseas trip. Obviously, we know he's, you know, been a, a veteran foreign policy person down the decades. Uh, he's done numerous trips, but this is a different role. This is finally, you're the president of the United States. You set the tone. How do you think he did? And give us a sense of how it went down in the US, how much coverage it got. I think it's been broadly well received and it's been covered in depth. Any television station you turn on, it's going to show you what Biden is up to today. And the cable networks do it 24-7. Uh, I think that the America is back message was probably needed for a domestic audience, but it's exceptionally boring to people who follow these issues on a daily basis, like, like all of us, because it doesn't really tell you anything other than the fact that he's not Donald Trump. So I think that really is the challenge that was you know, partially met, but not fully met during all of these summits, which is where's the meat? You know, when it came to the EU summit, they've got, I think, something like 15 different alliances, working groups, councils, dialogues that they've set up. So instead of actually solving problems in the summit itself, they've kicked the can down the road. And, you know, maybe it's in the right spirit, but it's still not a solution to a lot of the, the issues that need to be tackled. NATO, I think, 
you know, he was fairly strong there. He lined these summits up in the right way so that he went in with a, a full, strong hand for the meeting with Vladimir Putin. And the G7, I think that that's, you know, being fairly successfully turned around to be an organization that's about more than the economy. And they also got that economic deal on the global minimum corporate tax rate. So I think, you know, overall, I'd give him a seven or an eight, something like that. Okay. Yeah, we should note, and we had some, you know, I would uh, recommend that people look at our Biden in Europe coverage. We had uh, a lot of coverage over the weekend, including from both of you and uh, a team of editors behind the scenes as well, uh, working to bring it to our readers and a real comprehensive range there. And, and I guess areas where at least some people would say the leaders fell short, you know, on climate, made a very good story. And also on vaccines where, you know, a big pledge was made, but it wasn't quite as big, uh, Ryan, as had been billed in advance in terms of uh, a billion vaccines. Maybe actually I'll knock it down to a six and a half. You, that's a very good point you make, Andrew, uh, where it's very clear that the richest countries in the world could be doing more to make sure the vaccine uh, is more quickly distributed and that it does so in a way that doesn't disrupt the already existing sensitive supply chains. And, you know, that came up in an interview I did with the Belgian prime minister. He is a transatlanticist, Biden is his plan A, but also Belgium makes a lot of vaccines and America is completely disrupting that industry by not allowing raw materials to be sent to Belgium for the completion of that production. And also more generally by not allowing the export of vaccines up until this commitment at the G7. And then the commitment didn't really fully deliver what was advertised uh, as the leaders went into the summit. So that is disappointing. And one of Europe's big priorities is obviously climate. And you now have a situation where the US is much more in line with the European position, but they don't really agree on how to get to net zero. And the US just hasn't backed up Biden's commitments with legally binding targets or cash. So that's leaving the EU a little bit stranded. And I think they could have expected a bit more out of Biden. Yeah, so I wanted to just join up with that. Macron had made a huge point about needing to get the Americans to lift the restrictions on exporting components of vaccines. And he failed at that. That is not anywhere on the agenda right now. It doesn't seem like the Biden administration is about to move on that. And yet that was one of the main things that Macron went into the summit saying publicly that he wanted to achieve. And yet the Biden administration said, OK, we're going to give doses. OK, we're going to lift the patents, but not OK on the export of components, which Macron says is actually the more expedient, more urgent, more effective way of dealing with the supply needs that are still outstanding. Mm. And this is interesting because here we're getting into the nitty gritty. And this is obviously what, you know, the kind of daily business of international relations diplomacy is about to a large extent. One of the things I wanted to float with both of you is something about how we do our job, because over the past few years, we've got very used to Donald Trump dominating these gatherings in one way or another and turning everything into an episode of a reality show, right, where something big happens. There's a blow up. He pushes the Montenegrin prime minister out the way. He insults somebody. You know, he turns it into being all about him. But he does give you, if you like, an easy headline. Or the story becomes as it was in London, Reem, when you and I were there. It's actually a bit outside London, but the last NATO summit where the story became about people talking about Trump because the leaders were caught on microphone talking about Trump. So these, if you like, rather trivial events sometimes just became the main story. And now we have to get used to something that's a bit like, bit more like before, right? Where, you know, these long communiques are pre-prepared, which is obviously not agreed in a three-hour meeting. A lot of it's done in advance. And this is back to 
the more normal business of diplomacy, lots more negotiating behind the scenes, working parties, groups. And I guess the question is, that presents a bit of a challenge, I think, for us, right, in terms of reporting on this stuff. We don't have this sort of easy headline sometimes. And it's also a challenge to the policymakers, because I think the onus is now on them to deliver, right, to show that that works for the middle class or, or whoever else. Ryan, how do you think we adapt to this uh, this kind of, you know, going back to the future? I'm a kind of black sheep in the journalism family on this sort of thing, where I'm too wonky. And I love talking about the lists and the nitty gritty detail. And I don't mind doing that because I like to make people think a bit harder. And I don't like talking down to my audiences. At the same time, not everyone has time to go into all that detail. So, you know, I'm happier that it's back in this sort of mode now. But I also get that as we go more digital and as we get accustomed to the trumps of the world, our attention spans are shrinking. So my way of doing things is a harder sell, I would say. Well, I actually have to say it's up to us to make all of this more interesting. But I also think that in a way it will be more interesting because now the differences are going to be substantive. And we will have to explain to people, why are they substantive? Why is this important? And really do a lot of the storytelling and give color and peel back uh, sort of the veneer of unity and happiness that these Western leaders are going to want to sell us and spin us on. And so in a way, the distraction of these you know, crazy lunatic moments that Trump delivered uh, actually distracted us from the very real differences between the Europeans and the Americans that remain, that are sometimes foundational, that need to be figured out. If the Western bloc, and I know, for example, the French don't like to speak in these terms, is going to be able to have some sort of effective response to the challenge coming from China and Russia. And so it's up to us to get even better anecdotes, even better behind the scenes, and still explain, as Ryan was saying, all the nitty gritty important stuff that actually has some very direct impact on our daily lives. Just one other observation I'd make, and I think it comes up a bit in left-right divides in governing, is that right-wing governments tend to have fairly low expectations of the media. They like to think that we're all out to get them and that we're all left-wingers. So, you know, they're very transactional about it and they don't expect a lot from us. And that can involve some very interesting theatre when, when you're engaging. And the Biden administration is actually extremely defensive. You know, their attitude is is our job is to say how much better Biden is than Donald Trump. Um, and anyone who wants to criticise, anyone who wants to go behind the scenes and point out things that aren't on their press release schedule, um, they're not quite the enemy, but they're definitely getting the cold shoulder. They're definitely shut out of certain circles. And that's that's a frustrating dynamic that is not always obvious to, to people listening. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it is, um, yeah, certainly my experience is whoever's in power, you end up fighting with them pretty quickly. <laughs> Whatever nice noises they may stay at the start. And that's frankly, without wanting to be unnecessarily antagonistic, that is kind of part of our job. So Ryan, Reem, great to talk to you both. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now let's go direct to Geneva Airport to join the hardest working man in geopolitics and possibly the most travelled reporter of recent days, our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. David has been at every summit going over the past few days, even the EU-Canada one. Uh, so you've got the full collector set there, David, but let's concentrate on uh, the one that you were 
at just yesterday, the big one, Biden, Putin. You've got a great perspective on it, having uh, worked in Moscow and in the US and now, of course, in the EU. Give us a sense of what it was actually uh, like. Give us a, just a feeling of what it was like to be there in Geneva when Biden and Putin came face to face. Sure, this will definitely go down as one of those historic geopolitical scenes at a park, Parc Lagrange, in the center of uh, Geneva, along Lake Geneva, this verdant sort of rolling lawns, a villa, a library where they first uh, encountered each other, sitting with their uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. But the press corps were actually separated. Uh, the U.S. reporters on one side, the Kremlin reporters on another side. I had to ping a friend, and we met by the tennis courts in secret and sort of gathered to say hello to a, a buddy from Moscow and then walked <laughs> Over there to see what what their turf was like, and and there are these cultural differences. It's very cold know. war, isn't it? <laughs> very cold war. You know, the, the the White House reporters were in this uh, hotel space with five big air conditioners pumping and uh, bathrooms with terry cloth uh, hand towels. On the Russian side, it looked like an old Soviet high school with these wooden tables. They had porta potties over there. You know, if it's hot outside, you sweat, you suffer. Um, you know, beyond that, there was some scuffling. I wasn't there for this, but the pool reporters and the photographers mainly who went in at the very start. Uh, you know, we're tripping over each other. This is nothing new in our business. It gets quite uh, close contact in the age of COVID. You know, that's even more uh, troublesome. But everybody jockeying for position. And uh, where you have a, a cultural gap is that Russian security's response to that is to grab a hold of anybody and shove them back. Uh, the U.S. <laughs> doesn't quite take kindly to anybody putting their hands on, on a reporter. So there's a bit of screaming and shouting. Uh, the leaders themselves were a bit amused, but I bet also a bit unsettled by hearing some of that back and forth and shouting and scuffling. But in the end, they got their meeting underway. What struck you most about it? Well, this is, you know, as high political theater as you get when a Russian leader and a U.S. president are meeting. And certainly the stakes for both of them were quite high, given that relations are at a real low. I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate just how bad relations have gotten. I mean, up until yesterday, the ambassadors weren't even in their respective posts. And for me, the most striking thing was a point that Joe Biden, who is perhaps the best prepared U.S. president on foreign policy that we've ever seen talking about that tradecraft. I know we make foreign policy out to be this great, great skill that somehow is sort of like a, a secret code. All foreign policies is a logical extension of personal relationships. And that's what I think you have to take into account as you think about this summit. You know, they have met before Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, but not with Joe Biden as president of the United States, not in this context. And so they have to really give each other a chance. And so there's a lot of skepticism about what could happen here and people saying, don't give them uh, Putin a spot on the world stage. But, you know, Biden has to begin that face-to-face conversation. And that's really what they did. Mm. And how did you feel like Biden approached this? What was his uh, strategy here? They were really, really well prepared on the White House side. Obviously, they wanted no repeat whatsoever of Helsinki from 2018 when Trump just seemed to give everything over to Putin. And in that sense, uh, Biden and his team really did succeed. They uh, were tough. He was clear. To me, one of the most important things that he said was, that the U.S. does not do things against Russia's interests. It acts in its own interests. I told President Putin my agenda is not against Russia or anyone else. It's for the American people. And the reason this is important, although it was subtle, is that it takes 
Putin's victimization argument away. Putin is very quick, and the Russian state media are very quick to say, oh, they just hate us. The West doesn't like Russia. It's discrimination, almost racism. They'll never like us. And what Biden was doing was talking to Putin on his terms. Look, we know you have your interests. We have our interests. Let's make this a relationship of mutual respect. And that was a good message to get started with. Beyond that, he went through the points that he had to talk about, cyber attacks, you know, down the line on human rights and other things. He didn't make a point about out. Election meddling, obviously a source of great tension between Russia and the U.S. in recent years. But when he said, what would everybody you know, say about the U.S. if we went around meddling in elections? And I think quite a few people were snorting, knowing the history of uh, U.S. adventurism in Latin America and the Middle East and other places. But he did send a very, very clear message. And Putin, for his part, seemed to really be enjoying it. I mean, no question, he likes to be back on the world stage, one-on-one -on -one with the American presidents, the guys who have the biggest nuclear arsenals. Yeah, I mean, your point also about how Biden approached the Russian people, I thought was interesting. There was one point in the press conference where he actually said, look, we want the Russian people to do well. You know, we want them to, to kind of thrive. It's in, it's in their interest. I don't know, you will know better than me, how much of that Biden message, though, is going to percolate to the Russian people? How much are they going to hear that? Well, not much if he doesn't call on Russian reporters at his news conference or even let them in. And that was really a failure, I think, in a test of um, American democracy. You know, we know that a lot of Russian state media is Russian media is state controlled, but there are some very, very diligent, hardworking reporters. And I think the White House is smart enough to be able to recognize them and call upon them rather than just excluding them. And on Putin's side, you know, this is how he paints this picture of hypocrisy. His second question went to CNN. He called on the BBC. He called on Canadian reporters. That at least creates an appearance of openness. Now, we know a lot of his answers were things we've all heard before. Um, so, you know, they have to learn, I think, to take this to another level where they can break through with their message to the Russian people. And I think there are journalists who would ask good, tough questions. And I think Biden also should have the confidence, I think he does have the confidence to answer in a way that his message would start to filter through, knowing, of course, that yes, it will get, you know, shortened, it may get chopped up in the blender. But, you know, in this age of video, um, instant video on the internet, you know, that Russian people would hear him if he was talking to them. And there was a translator, at least, uh, providing that kind of interpretation. Yeah, I think that's it's true from from what we saw at both NATO and at the summit with Vladimir Putin. In one way, uh, the policy of the US is still America first when it comes to calling on reporters, uh, at least. David, we're going to let you uh, catch your plane and hopefully get some rest. Uh, thanks very much for talking as, to us today and for everything over the last few days, which people can read a special Biden in Europe section on our website with all of our coverage from the past few days, uh, much of it anchored by David. So do check that out if you can. David, thanks very much. Thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear from European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde. But first, a quick note to let you know that our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, will be taking over the Political Europe Twitter account this Friday, June the 18th, to celebrate our birthday. So do keep an eye on at Political Europe for some podcast highlights and your chance to ask questions about this show or any of our other audio offerings. And if you're listening after Friday, it might be worth scrolling back. There has been some very worrying talk of blooper clips. Check out Political Europe to see if they materialise. Now, coming up, Christine Lagarde in conversation with Politico's Johanna Triek and Florian Eder. Hi there, this is Jack Blanchard, Politico's UK political editor and the host of our Westminster Insider podcast, 
Every week, I take a deep dive into what's really happening in British politics and lift the lid on how Westminster, and more importantly, its people, really work. We've tackled the art of political drinking with the help of Nigel Farage, taken a deep dive into what really goes on at a G7 summit with one Tony Blair, and this week, we're looking back at one of the most pivotal moments of UK politics. Five years on from the Brexit referendum, you'll hear directly from the key figures who led the notorious spin operations for the Remain and Leave campaigns, including exclusive perspectives you will not have heard before. So be sure to subscribe or follow Westminster Insider wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to Andrew Gray. Oh, and happy birthday to the EU Confidential Gang. Christine Lagarde has been President of the European Central Bank since November 2019. Before that, she was boss of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and held various ministerial posts in the French government. On Friday of last week, she gave the first interview in her office on the 40th floor of the ECB's headquarters in Frankfurt to Politico's Johanna Treik and Florian Eder. As you can imagine, given the pandemic, Lagarde's tenure so far has been pretty challenging and pretty unusual. And you could read more about that, about her plans for the bank and her hopes for European economic recovery on politico.eu. But Lagarde is also the first female president of the European Central Bank. And for the podcast, we're going to focus on the part of her conversation with Johanna and Florian, where she talked about gender equality. Madam President, we are talking about all these issues, but you are very well aware, of course, that you are not only the most powerful woman, but maybe the most powerful person in European politics right now, aren't you? No, 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 no. No, I'm certainly not the most powerful person in Europe, and uh, I'm very concerned that we include as many women as possible in the decision-making processes that we have. I'm an ardent believer that diversity of views enriches the decision-making process, enriches the decisions that are reached. And I'm concerned that in the world of finance in particular, uh, there are not enough women at the table. You know, I've I've been around for quite a while now, uh, and I've been in those male-dominated universes, uh, whether in private practice as a lawyer for 20 years of my life, or in the public domain, either as Minister of Finance or as head of the IMF or now president of the ECB. And there are too many men in the room, or the other way around, there are not enough women in the room. So the more I can demonstrate, and the better I can demonstrate that we women can also do the job and should not be underestimated, underassessed, underrated, because we are different. I think the better for how decisions are made and the better for how other people uh, join those tables. There is no better example, really, for the dominance of men in finance than the ECB's governing council, where you are one of only two women. Um, It's the governments that nominate policymakers, but you've once said that you're not without power. And I would like to quote you, you said, what I can do is when there's a vacancy, I can raise my voice, I can pick up the phone, I can impress upon them that it is a bit ridiculous to have out of 25 members, only two women. So what I would like to know is how many times have you picked up the phone since you're the president of the ECB? I picked up the phone every time there was a vacancy. It's not proven 
entirely efficient all the time, but I think that it has helped. And I'm not going to give up. I will continue doing so. But you, you need to appreciate that it's probably easier for the composition of the executive board of the ECB. Uh, it's far more tricky uh, for the appointment of the governor of a national central bank, who is de jure, a member of the governing council, because those are regarded as national affairs. And, um, you know, governments or those that make those decisions will take my call. They, w they will not turn me down. But equally, they, they can just simply ignore anything that I say. Right. Which, unfortunately, so far has been the case more often than not. Well, I thought, you know, <laughs> picking, up, picking up the phone, raising your voice is something that you have to just be uh, at over and over and over. Uh, to the point of being annoying, but that's okay. And whenever people have this sort of eyebrows raising, uh, when I pick up the phone or talk about women, I, I point to the eyebrows and I said, hey, got you. <laughs> It's a serious affair and they shouldn't, they should be serious about it. Some of them are, are actually, some of them are, are really uh, concerned. Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, achieved for the first time a, a gender-balanced mm -hmm. college by telling uh, prime ministers and governments uh, that she wants a woman and a man as, as candidates mm -hmm. to, to pick from for herself. That is, of course, as you just described, a bit harder for you, but is that a good way to, to go about it, to have always the choice between uh, a man and a woman? I think it's, it, it has to be a deliberate process. And I'll give you an example. We have vacancies occasionally here at the ECB. And people within the institution can apply for the job and can be you know, shortlisted and eventually selected. In 80% of the cases, internally, males only apply. So it's, in a way, it's not enough to say we want parity of candidacies, as many men as women, but you need to go even beyond that. You need to go and actually call a number of, I'll say, non-males, to say, why, why don't you apply? You have the qualifications. You could be uh, in the group. You can be shortlisted. You can even maybe get the job, but you have to apply. And I have seen cases recently where there was not a single female candidate. And we reached out and, you know, with a bit of confidence building, some of them did apply. So it's... You know, as I, I've experienced that in, in so many instances. When I was in the private sector, you know, lawyers, it's pretty well known, receive a fixed uh, compensation plus bonuses if they perform well. I'm still to see a female lawyer coming to the management to say, my bonus is too small. I'm worth a lot more than that. I have seen dozens of male lawyers come to the management committee and say, Why is my bonus so small? I deserve more than that. Never a, sing never a single woman. So I think we need to have more confidence. I think confidence is one issue. Another issue is still children and raising children. And you've said in the past that men should be granted and encouraged to take longer paternity leave. Mm -hmm. And an ECB working paper has only shown, also shown that at the ECB, having children is a key reason for promotion gap. Mm -hmm. 
So when will the ECB start granting fathers more than two weeks of paternity leave? Soon. Soon. How soon? That's good news. <laughs> this, it, there's a process that has started. Uh, it's, you know, it's staff representatives, consultation. It, it takes a little while, but the plan is to actually double uh, the paternity leave and to move from those two weeks to four weeks or 10 days to 20 days, because I think we, we, we talk in, in uh, working days, but it's effectively to double it. What's also critically important, and uh, it's one aspect of the Biden uh, family plan, which I, I, I find quite good, is to make sure that there are structures where parents can actually make sure that they, their children are looked after properly, ch child, you know, child care centers. And at the ECB, we do have uh, various institutions that take babies or, or toddlers so that parents can feel comfortable coming to work, knowing that the, the toddlers and the babies are, are looked after properly. That's really, really important. The European Parliament is very keen on, uh, on gender equality in EU financial institutions and supervisory institutions with, with mixed success. Uh, what does that say about the, the credibility of the EU to convince the private sector to do more, uh, to more in this? Well, it certainly shows that it's a difficult task, but one that um, both the European Parliament and other institutions have to just keep at and persist and continue until there is adequate response and delivery. But if you look at the, at the landscape and you look particularly at the financial sector, which is the one that I have focused on recently, in the private sector, only about 20% of board members are women and 2% of the bank's top-level appointees are women. So there is a long way to go, even to sort of align with what the uh, European institutions are demonstrating. Many people will then argue that it's an issue of pipeline. There is not enough in the pipeline to actually find the right pool of candidates in order to appoint women. And we were just discussing that. It's an issue of making sure that there is equal opportunities for access to universities, encouragement to women to take on some of those sometimes alleged to be difficult uh, curses. Uh, and then there has to be support for this period of time where women only uh, bear a child and look after a baby and a toddler, typically, not always. Young parents do that as well. One of my sons actually is doing a fantastic job helping raising, I shouldn't say helping raising, actually raising with his wife uh, their two little uh, babies. But it's a period of time when a woman is traditionally far more busy with other things. And we, society needs to adjust to that and make sure that there is no gap, there is no uh, catch-up necessary by the woman. There has to be enough help so that she progresses along the way. And then I think there is the issue of confidence building that we need to just work on all the time. Should there be binding targets for women on board of banks that you just... Uh... I think there should certainly be... Um, I wouldn't say binding targets, but I would say targets for which management is accountable. Because there might be circumstances where you simply are close to target, not on target, and you want to just you know reassess and, and identify why you missed the target. But targets, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the pandemic has further increased inequality. Is there something specific that you think can be done so that we at least get back to pre-crisis level? 
when when we look at um, the employment market in particular, because that that's that's where inequalities are, are the most obvious. Inequalities aggravated by the pandemic. You see that uh, lower skilled people, young people, women, people under short term contracts were the prime victims of the pandemic. So I think governments, it's not something that a central bank can do because you need to really to be razor focused on those that have been hit most. And they need special support. They need uh, retraining, reskilling, orientation, support, confidence building so that they can be reinserted into the uh, into the into employment. I think that that's uh, extremely important. Thank you very much. Could we ask you one final question, perhaps? Because you've made it in finance. So what's your advice to young women trying to build a career in finance? Don't underestimate yourself ever. And um, what I was told by my synchronized swimming national coach, greet your teeth and smile. It Great. helps. <laughs> Thank you very much for... Thanks to Johanna and Florian for bringing us that interview with Christine Lagarde. And that's all the time we have on this birthday edition of EU Confidential. Remember, if you like the podcast, send cake. I mean, tell a friend. And be sure to subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>